Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Peter and Dodo for bringing me here to spend time with you for a week. And to the airplanes and fuel, sky, trees, water, mechanics, pilots, all the grandparents who are looking after your kids. Caregivers, their parents for having them. Trees for the floor, water for the trees. So when you look at me, the background are airplanes, carbon, giant footprint. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, I'll talk for about an hour or so, and we'll have a little break, and then we can have some questions and answers. But also while I'm talking, if there's something that's not making sense and you have a question that seems clear, then please ask it. And I know that for some of you, um, English is not your first tongue. And so feel free to ask me to clarify any terms that I use. Um, And also, if you feel like there's a question that you have that you don't know how to ask because the English isn't clear, (coughs) ask it anyways. Uh, Because there's probably a lot of translators in here who can help you out. Can you hear me? Any questions? So, I'd like to begin with a little passage from the beginning of the Rig Veda, which I've used in the front piece of my book. And it's a curious passage because if you ever study the very old um, tales from the early Vedas, you don't get a sense that much of a person uh, or a narrator. You just hear poetry about the natural world and various rituals happening in relationship to the natural world, to life and to death. But in one of the early paragraphs, there's this puzzling statement by a narrator that really captured my imagination. And it goes something like this. 
I do not know just who or what I am. I wander about concealed and wrapped in thought. I do not know, I'll repeat it. I do not know just who or what I am. I wander about concealed and wrapped in thought. Can anybody relate to this? Maybe so. <laughs> it's interesting, a few minutes ago, the instruction is just to sit, <coughs> sit down with a sense of steadiness and a background of relaxation and to pay attention to the feeling of inhaling and the feeling of exhaling. And most of the time what we notice in that experiment is not the feeling of inhaling and exhaling. It's that the mind circles around the experience of feeling inhaling and exhaling and is caught up in all kinds of thinking. Storytelling, uh, great commentary, expectations about what we're going to do together, or ideas about your neighbor or me. And so we find that we're not actually making contact with what's happening in this moment. We're caught up, wrapped up, and concealed in our own thought process. And the name that Patanjali gives to this thought process is Chitta Vritti. Have you heard this before? The word Vritti means a revolution, something that's turning. I like to think of it as momentum. And the word chitta means consciousness, which I like to translate as imagination. So chitta vritti is the constant <coughs> momentum and turning of our imagination. And so the narrator in the Rig Veda is revealing to the reader, which is you, you're also the narrator, that I do not know just who I am, what I am, why? Because I'm constantly caught in the momentum of chitta vritti. And when you put chitta vritti together, you get another word in the yoga lexicon, which is samsara. You've heard this word before? Mm -hmm. Samsara. And I like to translate samsara as meaninglessness. Because when you're caught up in your own virtual reality, your own constant elaboration on how things are, how they're supposed to be, how you wish they were, how you might think they could be, then we're not actually in relationship with how things are. We're in relationship with our own conception of how things are. And this creates a feeling tone of alienation and separateness. So the more we go around knowing about everything and knowing about everyone, the more we um, obscure the possibility or shut down the possibility of knowing anything at all. We, we use our knowing to orient us and then we confuse what we know for how things actually are. 
And in that confusion, which Patanjali calls Sang Yoga, which is like artificial yoga, we think that there is a relation, but it's an artificial relation because it's self-constructed through our imagination. And this is called daily life. And the term yoga comes from the root word yuj, which means to unite or to yoke or to bring two things together. But it's taken out of its verb form when it comes into the term yoga. So yoga is not to unite one thing with another. Yoga is not the practice of uniting your breath and your body or your mind and your soul or whatever your vocabulary is, the self and God, light and dark, yin and yang, foreground, background, masculine, feminine, Ida, Pingala, right side, left side. The term yoga means united. It's out of its verb form. So it means that everything's already united. You don't have to unite your breath and your body. They're already united. Your body's always grounded. You notice this? But the chitta vritti superimposes on what's already united division. And it separates things into this and that, subject and object, self and other, masculine, feminine, and so on. Sometimes it's helpful to create these separations. But most of the time we go around the world in this pattern of separation and it leads to dukkha or suffering, which I like to stick with the term samsara because it's so clear, which it leads to meaninglessness. And then we get an idea that we have to go find ourselves. So the mind comes up with this great idea, well, I have to go find myself because I don't feel myself. So I go looking around outside of myself, which didn't actually even exist in the first place until we came up with the idea that there was a self that was mine. And then we go looking for this self that is supposedly mine outside of ourselves, in other people, in money, in the natural world, in India, in Tibet. or on the beaches of Thailand with our favorite yoga teachers. The problem is, is that we look deeply into India and the self isn't there. Because yoga (coughs) isn't from India. Yoga is not from Bengal. Yoga is not from Tibet. Because yoga has always been here. Because yoga is in everything. Yoga is a term that describes the interrelationship of everything. So I like to translate yoga as intimacy. And you don't need to go to India to find it. You don't even need the Sanskrit. It's just our Western vocabulary is kind of poor at describing subtle psychological insight. So Sanskrit is kind of helpful. But this is yoga. Are you looking somewhere else? 
everything is intimately connected with everything else, which is good ecology. Like when I say, here I am, and so is the airplane, so are the trees, so is the water, then there's yoga. Because there's a recognition of the seamless continuity of life. But then the mind separates out the person from the background and has this idea that there are these separate cells floating around like ice cubes in a jar, banging into each other, my parking spot, my style, my yoga, my practice. And then we miss the intimacy, the basic intimacy of everything. And we're at a time in our culture, cultures, where all of the great spiritual traditions that have ever existed and that exist now are being pressed because they have to respond not just to personal suffering and how to work with it, but how to work with the suffering of the fish and the suffering of the rivers and the suffering of air quality, an institutionalized form of samsara, not just personal transcendence. And yoga has a lot to offer us at these times, if we can make contact with the inner teachings of the practice and not just the outer form of the practice. Because then we just turn the practice into another religion that isn't applicable at this time because we're not living at a time on earth where we need more ideology and more philosophy. Wittgenstein said this a long time ago, which nobody listened, so we'll say it again tonight. (laughs) The purpose of your philosophy is to come to the end of philosophy. You don't need the philosophy anymore. The Buddha describes it as crossing a river in a raft, that the teachings are just a raft that you use to cross a river. But when you cross the river, you don't need the raft anymore. It's not a golden raft. It's not a houseboat. It's not holy and it's not sacred. Teachings are not holy. Teachings are not sacred. They're just a vehicle that you're using to get around. It's your bicycle. It's not a fancy bicycle like one of these Christiania vehicles. Just a very basic inexpensive bicycle gets you from A to B. Whole teaching is just like your bicycle. But when you come up here for the talk, you don't bring your bicycle with you. You leave it locked up, hopefully. And if you didn't invest in an expensive bicycle and there's not a lot of attachment, something could be happening right now and somebody's using it for their transportation. So this is how we relate to the teachings. What happens is, is that in the yoga community, in the Hatha yoga community, is that we're working with very advanced yoga, which is to work with the body. And the body is the aspect of the self that seems to feel most me, most personal, most real, and most permanent, even though we know that it's aging and impermanent. 
But what happens when we work with the body is that over time, we have to use technique in order to work with the mind-body process. Because without technique, we just get caught up in the momentum of the chitta vritti or the prana vritti, the fluctuations of the mind, the fluctuations of the internal breath. So we need technique so we can start to work with the momentum of our habit energies so that we can wake up to the inherent intimacy of everything. And that's the purpose of yoga, is compassion and wisdom. Karuna and Pragna. But what happens is, when we start working with the technique, the mind latches onto the technique and confuses the technique for the yoga. So then we get attached to the technique, we think it's sacred, and then we become technique junkies, shooting up on technique. And we start going to weekend workshops, and we think that it's the accumulation of the technique in some linear way that is going to bring us the yoga. And then if I just accumulate the first series, the second series, third series, and they just keep inventing series like every good franchise (laughs) so that they ratchet up the goal of yoga so it's something you can't ever achieve. And that's done to point you back to yourself. And I've done it for you already. So if you're still working on Dandasana, well, I've already done second series, and most of you have, and third series. And I'll tell you, it doesn't change. <laughs> okay? There's still an aspect of the mind that's looking for the next thing, that's planning ahead and imagining that in the future, if I can just get that particular backbend pattern, then I'll be happy. And then we turn the yoga technique into another form of materialism. What the great Tibetan teacher Shogyam Trungpa calls spiritual materialism. Where we just add technique to the ego to reinforce its superiority so that we think we're spiritual. I've done second series. So spiritual. I live in India six months of the year. And I eat samosas. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're doing these amazing backbends, but then you go home after class to your lover, and you get into the same old emotional arguments <coughs> and reaction patterns that you had before you start started practicing yoga. Or maybe the physical practice is going well, And so you have more energy, and now you have more energy to be neurotic (laughs) and perfectionist and anxious because you, you have increased the energy, but you haven't changed the plumbing system 
because we're still caught in the superficial geometry of the yoga poses and we forget what the yoga pose is pointing at which is a big question which is who are you and how do you express that because yoga does not get passed down through books published by Shambhala publications yoga gets passed down through who you are through your expression of intimacy in all of your actions of body, speech, and mind. The actions you take on with your body, how you speak, how you listen, and how you think. This is how you express yoga, how you express intimacy. Not by accomplishing gymnastic feats with your body, because that doesn't make any sense. First of all, your body is impermanent, it's aging, and your arm balances are only a few years from fading away. (laughs) Secondly, if people who are genetically um, organized to not put their feet around their head, does this mean that they can't get enlightened? So I think unconsciously we associate the accumulation of yoga poses with some kind of process of waking up. And what I'd like to explore over the next week is this question, which is, what are we practicing when we practice yoga? Aside from the fact that you can't practice yoga, because everything's already yoga. It's nothing to do. Which leads to another question, which is, if everything's already interconnected, then why do you practice? And we practice because of this uh, insight that all of us know in our hearts, which is described in the Rig Veda. I do not know just who or what I am. I wander about concealed and wrapped in thought. And I like the notion of wandering about. That when you're concealed and wrapped in knowing about everything, then we're disoriented, existentially disoriented. And then you try and find yourself in everything. And every time you wonder about who you are, you're going to come up with a good story to replace the old one. Sometimes the story is going to be positive, and sometimes it's going to be negative. I'm nothing. You go home, and you look in the mirror, because somebody said that the eyes are the windows to the soul, and you look in the mirror to find your soul, You ever done this before? It's really fun. You drop acid, and then you look (laughs) into the mirror, into your own eyes, and you stare into your own eyes to find yourself. I do this all the time. I love looking in the mirror. (laughs) So, um, 
I don't recommend this to do very often. <laughs> okay, so you look into the mirror and um, you look into your <coughs> eyes because that's you. And then you see colors and then you see the pupil dilating, retina, blood vessels, more colors. And then you, what you're noticing is impermanence. Eyes are changing, blinking. You're noticing reality expressing itself in patterns of color and form. But no matter how deep you look into the eyes, you can't find yourself. I look into the eyes to find Michael, and I look and I look, and nowhere in that pattern can I find a piece that is Michael. We'll try this as an exercise this weekend. You can also do it with any part of your body, like your kidneys. This is a great partner exercise we do in yoga workshops often is we'll slice open <laughs> the back and we'll take out, you take out your kidneys, both of them, if you have to, and you put them in the center of the room in a big pile and you put it on like a bag or something so it doesn't stain the floor. And then you wait a couple minutes and then you go back to the center of the room and you try and take out your kidneys. <laughs> so find the kidneys that are most yours and then you put them back and everything's okay again. The problem is, is when you try and find your kidneys, which is your body, which is personal, you can't find them. They're mixed up with everybody else's kidneys. Just like we're sitting in the room here and you are real. You're not just real, but you're really real. Really, really, really real. The problem is, is somebody else beside you is also really, really real. And somebody else is really real. And so you have all these really, really real people who look out of their eyes with a viewpoint that they are real and that everything else circles around their reality. And then when people talk to us, we filter their reality in terms of our reality and how it relates to the story we have about our life and whether it fits or not. And this filtering process actually creates separation from what's real because we're all real but we're equally real and so is the bird. And your reality isn't more important than the bird's reality. And this is the problem with environmentalism because environmentalism looks at the environment from the human reality perspective. So we want to protect this and protect that to serve our needs. But yoga, intimacy, as expressed through ecology, places all the corners of life into equal relations so that you can't find the center of everything or anything because everything is the center. 
just like you can't find where Michael ends, because where Michael ends, Toronto begins, my wife begins, my son begins, and then his imagination and your imagination, and then the water that is 74% you, and that the more you look into you, the more you find that you're made up of non-human elements, which don't belong to you. But then the mind says, that's me, and then you feel real, and then the more you feel real, the more you believe it, and then you think that you're separate from reality. I don't know how this happens, but it happens. And then things become meaningless because we don't see the interrelationship. So that the background of anything is everything. Especially for those of you who are therapists. I know there's a couple in the room where you meet someone and you take their case history and you actually believe that that is their background. But somebody's background is wheat and farmers and corn and cows and pine needles. Just as much as their background is what they imagine to be their past. Except the problem is, is we don't see that when someone describes their background, it's all fiction. Because it doesn't exist. Because it's in the past. And the past is over. <laughs>